So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the first riot of the Luddites. Then on Tuesday, we unearthed the mad coincidence of the day two different Dennis the Menaces made their comic strip debuts. On Wednesday, the day the Spanish conquered the last Maya kingdom. Thursday was the day Colonel Sanders sued KFC. And on Friday, we recall how Vincent van Gogh's sister-in-law made his name. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Wait, you mean we've got a podcast out the day after the race? That can't be right. We're not missed Apex. Don't be silly. We're actually here to drop a fun episode of another podcast called The Overview. The Overview is the classy new podcast from The Week magazine and the team behind the award-winning The Week Unwrapped podcast and also the team behind this podcast, Rethink Audio. Each episode gets listeners up to speed on an idea that's in the news, exploring the past, present and future of a story that's in the headlines to understand why it matters and what might happen next. But hang on, how can that possibly compare with the range of expert insight that we've got here at Team FF1S? Well, we've got experts' insight written all over us, and the Women's Euro Championships is happening at the moment. You guys that are listening are the kind of stylish, forward-thinking folks that will probably be interested in a show like that. So, here is one. And subscribe to the overview for more episodes. There's a link in the show notes. What a show note. (laughs) Two running space between the lines. Oh, lovely turn. Rousseau! When you see the fans with players' names on their back, the women's game's just in a great place. And it's given! Just listen to that! England's ranted! It's just amazing to see how inspiring they've been to the whole country. Kirby, onto him, onto that left foot, charge down. Oh, Kirby! This is so big, it's grown so much. If you've been watching the Women's Euros, you would have noticed that the women, they actually tackle harder. And I tell you what, they don't roll over crying at the end either. They get up and carry on playing. Yeah, England do have a chance to win this. On home soil, with the crowd behind them, they absolutely do have a chance to win this. According to the headlines, 2022 is shaping up to be a defining year for women's football. England is hosting the Euros. Matches are selling out and games are being shown on mainstream television channels. But where did the sport come from? Why has it taken so long to rise to prominence? And is now really the time for women's football to shine? From The Week magazine, I'm Julia O'Driscoll, and this is The Overview. Women's football is as old as football culture. Sports historian Professor Jean Williams wrote the first academic PhD on the history of women's football. It was published as a book in 2003 with the title A Game for Rough Girls. So we generally talk about there being two forms of football. Folk football, which most people will be aware of, you know, uh, Shrove Tide games like Callerton bottle kicking and those kinds of games where they did have rules, but they were fairly loose. 
there were many forms of women's folk football way before football was codified by the FA in 1863 with their 11 laws of the game. So that's when we start to talk about modern football from 1863 onwards with the formation of the Football Association. And we know that there were organised women's games from at least 1881 and more into the 1890s when the British Ladies Football Club was formed and went on to play something like 160 matches, including increasingly against men's teams, which drew the largest crowd. And that led to the first ban by the FA when they banned women's teams from playing against men's teams. So women's teams don't generally play against men's teams. And that 1902 ruling is the reason, although there is increasingly mixed soccer at adult level and amongst children. One of the landmark events in women's football was World War I. What happened in the First World War was that as men were conscripted to have to join the army, it left the dirty and dangerous jobs like munitions work to women and where the women worked together, they played together and started to form teams to raise charitable funds for often wounded men who came back from the front, for health charities and for some of the most in need in their society. And the really significant thing about the First World War Games is that it was a kind of double war work. Women worked in the munitions by day and instead of resting on weekends and evenings, they did a second kind of war work, which was playing games for charity in front of large paying crowds to raise money for some of the most needy in society. One of the most significant teams of the early 20th century was Dick Kerr's Ladies FC. Formed out of a munitions factory in Preston, crowds of thousands would turn out to watch the team play. On Boxing Day in 1920, a match between Dick Kerr's and St Helens Ladies in Liverpool was attended by 53,000 fans inside the stadium and 14,000 looked on from outside the gates. For reference, Anfield, Liverpool's home ground, has a capacity of just under 54,000. Women's football was actually accelerating in popularity by 1920-21, was drawing large crowds in major stadia. And the Football League, which had been around since 1888 as a form of male professional football, wanted to expand from two divisions to four in 1921. So it put pressure on the FA to ban women from grounds affiliated to the Football Association, which included these large stadia that had been used for the charity matches. And that ban was in place for almost 50 years. The damage done by the ban is practically immeasurable. It invented a myth that women's football wasn't as spectacular as as men's football because actually we know that it it could consistently draw these large crowds. So some of the problems that we're having around the staging of the women's Euros in 2022 speak to the invention of that myth because, you know, okay, we do have Old Trafford and we do have uh, Wembley and we do have the odd game at St Mary's, but... UEFA and the FA are still using pitches that only house 5,000 spectators because they still have a view that women's football can't fill large stadia. But that didn't stop women from playing. Dick Kerr's continued to play, as did many other teams, both on home soil and internationally. 
Jean highlighted a team she thinks are deserving of more space in the history books. Manchester Corinthians were globetrotters. They were even more successful than Dick Kerr's in terms of the amount of money that they raised globally for the Red Cross. And when you talk to those women, the oldest of which, Alice Elliott, started playing when she was 14 in 1949, you know, to get a game of football during the ban on women's football, they would get, like, two buses to go to Fog Lane Park in Manchester... And there was no hot running water at that site. And they talk about having a wash in a duck pond before getting two buses home. Why would you bother to do that? You did it because you absolutely loved football. The ban eventually ended in 1971. Why? It was overturned because Italian businessmen proved not only that there could be league, successful women's league football in the late 1960s in Italy, again, drawing crowds and sponsors and all of the things that we think of as being part of the women's game today, but there was also two very successful unofficial World Cups, which were housed in major stadia in Italy in 1970 and even more spectacularly in Mexico in 1971, where the crowd for the final in the Azteca was 110,000 people. So if you think of the way in which that was sold in 1971, we're still not back there with women's world cups today there is still never 50 years later been such a big audience at a women's world cup and it's because the governing bodies fifa uefa and the fa convinced themselves that women's football can't be sold as spectacularly as men's and we know again that that that's a complete myth after the ban was lifted things didn't get much easier women have had the most atrocious pitches at the worst time after they've been used all weekend by men and boys. The changing rooms are dirty. I've done it myself, even in the 1990s, you know. There were horses tethered to the pitch, a game that we wanted to play, that had been left there by local travellers. And if we wanted to take a throw-in, we had to move the horse first and hope you didn't step in anything that it had left before you could take your throw-in. So this is how women have been treated in football. And quite rightly, a lot of them have gone off and done other things. Despite the challenges that players put up with, popularity for women's football surged again in the 1990s. I spoke to Jen O'Neill, the editor of She Kicks magazine. She's been covering women's football for more than 20 years, reporting on all the major tournaments in that time. I asked Jen to tell me about the recent history of women's football. I always start my women's football journey covering international tournaments from 1999 in the US, which in almost in some ways was a false dawn because it was so well marketed and, and so well supported. People will know that the world record for an attendance was at the final at that tournament with 90,185. But I was at the opening game, US against Denmark, and there were 78,000 in the Giants stadium. So it had already captured the imagination. But then... You, you have professional leagues that start and fail in the US and it takes until maybe the last four or five years for women's leagues across Europe and in other parts of the world to start properly funding their, their players week in, week out so they can be professional and we're seeing the dividends of that on the pitch in terms of the standards. It's, it's so markedly different from even six years ago and I think that's actually impacting on the viewers' There are always going to be naysayers, but people who are 
maybe saw it once or twice a few years ago are now seeing the action now and they're loving it. You can't deny the standard and the quality of the football has come on leaps and bounds. Jen says a couple of pivotal moments in the past decade or so have massively changed things, really since the FA introduced the Women's Super League, or WSL, in 2010. The last few years, things have really started to snowball in England. And that started 10 years ago when the FA introduced the FAWSL, which is the a sort of rebranded version of what was their Premier League. And that was a really brave and visionary thing for the FA to do, to invest in that. And now, 10 years on, we see clubs like Chelsea, Manchester City, and more lately, Manchester United getting involved. And that league, again, they made another decision in 2018 to make it fully professional. It became the first fully professional league in Europe for women. And the standards started to go through the roof and the investment from from clubs started to ramp up as well. And then you compounded that with a broadcast deal. So when you talk about support, you can talk about it being official, you can talk about it being commercial, you can talk about it in terms of broadcast and media, and also then in terms of fans who are coming into stadia or engaging on social media. And so visibility is massive. And their commitment to showing live matches Sky had the rights to up to 44 matches to show live, the BBC 22 live games. That visibility is just huge. It's a game changer. And, and those things happening in England have increased the visibility of, the, of individual players as well as teams. And it's, we're seeing that in terms of huge crowds at FA Cup finals, at Wembley. It is a snowball effect. The injection of capital has meant that for the best players, football is now a viable career for the first time in England. This has had a dramatic effect on the standard of England's national team, who are now ranked one of the best in the world. An athlete needs to be able to, to recover. They, they've always trained you know, to the, to the utmost. Even if you look back to 2001, when England made it to the Euros in Germany, those players had jobs and they had to take time off work. Um, you know, you work in a hospital, you're a postwoman. They had to take time off work to go and represent their country. So they were training maybe twice a week and then, and then taking time off to represent England on an international stage. Where 21 years later, these players train every day. Everything that they do, every way that they approach their daily life is about getting the best out of their bodies and their football performances. So the recovery time is actually key. People often think that, yeah, if they train more, they're going to be fitter. But if you speak to a professional player, they'll tell you it's actually the time that they have to rest, to eat properly, to, to look after themselves. And that's when you get the best out of players. Pundits, commentators and football fans are saying that 2022 is a landmark year for women's football. More to come. I agree that 2022 is a defining year for women's football. Um, if England win, then I suppose it has to be because it becomes a watershed moment in terms of inspiring new players and, and new supporters. If you look over in 1966, the men won the World Cup. The Women's Football Association was set up a few years later during the ban. In 1990, I joined a team at Sunderland when they set up a women's team because of the, the groundswell of interest in football after 
the semi-final loss to Germany. Boo. Um, and then in 1996, we saw another exponential growth in, in not just boys, but girls playing football as well. So I think if England could win this, then they're going to become national heroes. However long that lasts for, I don't know, because in Germany, they've won the Euros eight times out of 10. And there's always a bounce afterwards, an interest. It's about sustaining that. So as much as I've said that it's an evolution rather than a revolution, 2022, if England win it, even I can't expect or predict what might happen. I asked Jen, how did the sport find its audience before it got a big marketing push? Well, I think that women's football's found its audience in the UK um, primarily through the introduction of social media. I think that was such a, a pivotal moment in, in the sense that it diverged around all of the blocks that you would potentially get through mainstream media not featuring matches or not focusing or, or featuring players or teams or the news that you needed. It, it created a sense of community and that's grown across the world. And it's also been places for people to see action and get to know players and become invested in. The engagement has always been fantastic between clubs and players and, and it continues to grow. There are obviously negative elements to that and that, that is something that UEFA and the FA and, and BT Sports with their Hope United campaigns are all trying to combat the misogyny that you might face online. The fan base for women's football is undoubtedly growing. But who are the fans? Jenny Mitten is a director at MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment, where she leads the charge on the business of women's sport. She explained that women's football is reaching new fans who haven't engaged with it before. Unsurprisingly, those initial ticket sales were from what we class as hardcore women's football fans. So we were seeing more females. We were seeing a younger group. That wasn't unexpected. I think what was unexpected is when we got to the general sale. So this was in March. So we were still sort of four or five months out from the tournament. And this is where we saw an initial burst of sort of what we classically call the big event audience. I think the most surprising stat at this point of the sale was 75% of people that bought tickets were unknown to UEFA or FA, where I think at the pre-sale, it was probably only about 20% were unknown. So that huge surge of interest from new fans. What do we know about them? We saw some really interesting audiences come through, really encapsulate that big event piece. So we saw what I like to call the hardcore football fans. So, you know, Bob and Sharon from Sheffield, who see Sheffield United week in, week out, they were buying tickets for Bramall Lane because they just want to see more brilliant football in the stadium they love. And we also saw a lovely trend, which we sort of classed as dads and daughters, but we don't know the sex of um, the kids, where single adult males were buying tickets with groups of kids as well. So obviously the dads are scooping up all the kids and taking them to the games. Um, and then Gen Z, you know, this elusive Gen Z that we're trying to encapsulate. And we know across the board in sport, actually, they're losing interest in sport and they're getting harder to engage. Um, actually, at general sale, 39% of tickets sold, um, this is back in March, was Gen Z. So we've really seen it, the audience shift from a sort of really hardcore women's football fans that we expect to know. And I think big tournaments like this really do pull in that big event audience. So does women's football now have a different audience to men's football? I think they do. I think where we see overlaps, if we look at probably the domestic calendar, so the Barclays Women's Super League versus the Premier League, it is far more weighted towards older males within the Premier League. 
What's different about a tournament like the Women's Euros and with the Men's Euros and World Cups, these tournaments traditionally bring in big eventers, which is why they're always so exciting for sponsors, because sponsors know they can reach a wider audience pool than with men's football. And I think what we're seeing is this big eventer audience for the Women's Euros, it is skewing slightly younger and it is more diverse, which I think is really interesting. So there are a lot of parallels between the audiences, but we are seeing quite the next generation of football fans through women's football coming through. And I think what the hope is that through these bigger tournaments, if someone's had a taste of football where maybe they felt intimidated by men's football, men's football has been more expensive or, you know, they've, they've just thought maybe it's not for me, but I want to get behind the women's game. If that then brings them back into football as a sport, then I think that's really exciting for the game. So I think women's football could actually really help men's football as well. Things may be moving in the right direction, but the women's game still faces barriers that the men's doesn't. I asked Jen what the main challenges are for teams and players. Yeah, so, so I've mentioned the, the sort of ongoing tussle with misogyny and comments online. And you only need to hop onto social media and, and see that. And actually, to me, it is almost a marker of the, the growth of the game because with She Kicks, we've always operated in a, a sort of a niche area. So we're, we're preaching to the converted almost. And, and even now we're starting to see it drip into our into a bit of your social media feeds, people are a little bit miffed about having to accept that the women's game is growing and that it's it's great to watch. The other thing is achieving sustainability. So financially, the WSL is fragile. We have to accept that. In in some respects, some might say that the FA might view it as a as a liability financially. We've seen leagues in the US fold in the past. So yeah, that that is a concern because I think at Currently, or in the last season or two, the combined losses of WSL clubs was between 20 and 26 million pounds. And that is bankrolled by their partner clubs. And with FFP rules changing, that might affect their enthusiasm to invest in their women's teams. But on the flip side, it's obviously a growth area. So it may not be as frightening or as doom mongering as that. The other things are that the growth is not linear. It's not universal. So in in some areas of the world, in some leagues, women are not paid as well. Their conditions are poor. It affects the standards of the game and it also affects their safety and well-being. So it might be rosy for players in England, but it it might not be so rosy for for players in other parts of the world. And finally, and most importantly, and and the, the one that I feel so passionate about is the opportunity to play. You know the whole see it to be it. You can watch these fantastic female athletes on TV, but then how do you go out and get yourself playing football if you're a young girl? Currently, only 63% of schools offer girls football and PE lessons and only 40% of schools offer girls regular extracurricular football. That needs to be remedied. Football should be for all. And that is something, to their credit, the FA and Barclays are trying to rectify. With all the significant victories that women's football has made recently, has it overcome the challenges of the past? Historian Jean isn't convinced. What's holding it back is the lack of ambition in the governing bodies of football. Every new tournament that comes along, UEFA will say, oh, it's it's groundbreaking, it's record-breaking. Well, if you expand it from a 12-team tournament to a 16-team tournament, you're almost going to bound to break records. So why not expand it to a 32-team tournament and have it the same size as the men? and sell it in a really spectacular way. You know, if if you made me president of FIFA tomorrow, go on, I dare you, 50% of the resource would go to the men's and the boys' game. 
and 50% of the resource would go to the women and girls game. And that would be really, really easy because one of the things holding back Women's World Cup, which we're going to see next year, is disproportionately the men's prize money for Men's World Cup is something like £700 million. And, you know, for women, even if they push it from 30 million to 60 million, which they're discussing as a percentage, it's absolutely tiny. So male national teams are being paid more to do badly in a men's World Cup than the US are being paid to win a women's World Cup. That's the kind of disparity that we're talking about in terms of resource. So let's change the governance of football. Let's give out the resource 50-50 if you really want to develop world football rather than just make money for key sponsors and then things will start to change. Jen agreed that there's progress to be made at the top. Um, yeah, in terms of the, the, the big organisations, sort of FIFA, UEFA, etc., there is still an element of tokenism, but that is not to detract from the number of people working in those organisations who care passionately. And the number of ex-players and, and people who've been involved in the sport. For example, Nadine Kessler. For non-football fans, Nadine Kessler is UEFA's head of women's football. When asked about prize money, she will argue that actually it still costs a lot of money to put on the women's Euros. So it's a loss leader in that sense. But it's a commitment that they feel they need to make because of what's happened over the last 50, 100 years. And also it's their duty to drive change and drive future investment and participation in, in the sport, which, you know, women make up more than half of the world's population. It makes sense, doesn't it? Jenny says that the scale of investment into this year's Euros will hopefully set an example of what is possible when the sport is properly invested in. That, and I think what we want to now see is probably that then trickle down into the domestic game and some of those clubs invest. I think it's a lot easier for a big governing body like a UEFA and a FIFA who have four yearly tournaments, who have big global sponsors with that money behind them to put these on. They have the weight and the influence to do that. What we then need to see is some of the clubs and some of the smaller rights holders to sort of lean into women's sports more. I know money is always an issue, but take advantage of these big tournaments. Take advantage of this growing audience. The Women's Super League, when it comes back in late August, they should be putting on some of those games in the men's stadiums. They should be promoting some of those really big fixtures, those key moments, the classic um, iconic rivalries, because you've suddenly got this new audience that you can transfer over and it can't just be left to the bigger rights holders like the FIFAs and UEFA to throw all that sort of weight behind it. So could football be creating a model that other female professional sports could emulate? I think so, because it is the best known sport. It's in this country, the number one passion, I think most countries you go into. It is that for women's sport, the Trojan horse. I think everyone who watches football understands good football because we're seeing good quality football in women's sport. We're pulling in everyday men's fans as well who are coming over. And, you know, it does naturally draw more awareness. If you're a broadcaster, you're going to want to show the most popular sport in the country. It's football. If you're a newspaper, you're going to want to write about the most popular sport in the country. So people buy your paper. It's football. So I think, you know, this is probably one reason why women's football is light years ahead is because of some of the other formats is because it is the biggest sport across across men's sport as well. And that's no bad thing. That's all for today's episode of The Overview. Thanks to historian and author, Professor Jean Williams, editor of She Kicks magazine, Jen O'Neill, and MNC Saatchi Sport and Entertainment's lead on women's sport, Jenny Mitten. Thanks also to the week's Kari Wilkin, our producer, Brits Jarman, and to Rethink Audio. 
If you enjoyed this episode, follow the overview wherever you get your podcasts. Oh. Sports Social Podcast Network.